episode December 2016. I know that's not as satisfactory as saying an episode title, but hey, that's what it is, and I've figured out a proper naming scheme to do these things with. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. Why am I doing a solo episode? Well, there are a few reasons. Number one, anecdotally, I've heard that you like them, which, as someone who is pretty hard on myself and someone who has a lot of negative self-talk, I find this surprising for whatever reason. But you told me you've enjoyed them, especially the last one I did focusing on parenting, so I'm happy to do another one again. I think I'm going to make this about a quarterly thing. Secondly, serendipity. We've dealt with a lot of illness around our house, and those of you who have put children into daycare or school or whatever they call it the first time will empathize with me because we cannot seem to shake these shackles. Do you shake shackles? We seem unable to escape the shackles of sickness. Ever since we put Grace into daycare, the plague has gone through our house in multiple formats. Whether that's the stomach flu, whether that's a bad head cold, it seems to morph and evolve. And, you know, it's like the movie Outbreak, the Motaba virus is first only through fluid transfer and then it becomes airborne. And, you know, they threaten to nuke the city of Cedar City, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, I can't remember the name of the city, but Dustin Hoffman's excellent in that movie. Cuba Gooding Jr. is tremendous. Renee Russo's terrific. Uh, of course, she's written a little better in this movie than she is in Major League, which I did not so much enjoy her in. But, you know, you're tacking a love story on to sort of an inside look at what it's like inside a baseball clubhouse, which is a lot of fun. Anyway, that's a flavor of kind of what you can expect here. I go very stream of consciousness in these solo episodes. I don't script them. This time I do have a handful of bullet points that I'd like to cover. But I kind of go wherever my mood and my mind takes me. And I don't edit these ones. Uh, I do a little bit of aesthetic editing for my usual episodes, the ones I do with guests. But solo up, I feel like that's cheating. You know, whatever comes out here is what comes out and... You know, maybe I should be drunk or something in Vino Veritas, but uh, I don't do that. Uh, I just sort of let my mind play and let it be unleashed here. So that's a long way of saying uh, I, I didn't have any guests lined up this week anyway. So the timing was really, really good because between my regular job dealing with sickness around the house and the general insanity of the holidays, the red and green menace is just right around the corner. Booking guests has been a challenge lately, so I tell you that. The third reason, and I think we're on the third reason, is that there's probably a handful of you that are visiting this for the first time. And so, first of all, I'd like to say welcome. And secondly, I'd like to say that's because the Denver Business Journal has just written a profile on me. Now, as I record this, I have not read it yet. It comes out Friday, December 16th. So this goes live two days before that. You know, we're live here on Wednesday, December 14th, and that was an enormous thrill for me. Kathy Proctor is a reporter that I've worked with 
Over the years, I used to work in my corporate gig in media relations, so she'd call me. She'd ask for the company's comment on any number of stories she was doing. As I got let go a year and a half ago, I've stayed in contact with her for various reasons. I mean, I've stayed sort of in the same industry, so she still knows me. We still circle into each other's orbits from time to time. And I was at a conference in August, and she said, look, the DBJ is replacing what we did before, and I don't remember what it was exactly. It was like who's who or something with this thought leader series where each week we profile someone as a thought leader and you know, you got let go from your corporate gig. You got laid off and you're thriving. You started your own company and it seems to be going really, really well for you. So I think I'd like to tell that story. And I said, great. I've told that story a little bit uh, on the podcast. If you read the story in the Denver business journal, you're going to have even more insight as to what that process was like, because I mean, you know, this, I've been a little bit cagey in talking about it and you can understand why, you know, you're a little bit gun shy when it comes to, I don't know, talking about things that are difficult, talking about things that were challenges in your life and being very, very specific about it. That is vulnerability. It's also a professional risk. So I knew that going into this piece, I knew she was going to want to ask me and talk about what getting laid off was like. And what happened in the immediate aftermath of that. So like you, I am very curious to read this profile piece because we did the interview a couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago. And honest to God, I don't really remember it. There's also a video component that I filmed like two weeks ago. That's a lot of fun. That one's pretty light. That's, you know, sort of digital content that is, is a nice fun supplement to, to the meat, which is the interview. So Keep your eye out for that. And it brings me to a point I want to make here, which is as we sit here in December 2016, I have now been self-employed for like 19 months, 19, 20 months, something like that. And the thing that's so amazing about that is, and someone told me this is Oprah's quote, so I may have to start saying something else, but I am living my best life. I am continuing to live my best life in terms of my job and what I do professionally. I literally have never felt better. Now, granted, that comes with a lot of terrifying uh, feelings, a lot of feelings of anxiety, a lot of feelings like, and you go through this when you're self-employed, you think to yourself, I am a fraud. I am an absolute fraud. Someone is going to show up and haul me to jail for even me daring to think that I could pull this off. And the idea that I am charging people for money for my professional talent. There's a deep down part of you that goes, I do not deserve this. And that is a weird, weird feeling. And the way I get over that, and I talk about this in the profile piece, and this is, this gives you a little bit of insight as to where the screw turns for me and how I actually get stuff done. One of the questions Kathy asked me was, what keeps you up at night? And you can answer that in any number of ways. Now, there's any number of practical things that keep me up at night. I have two children under two. I'm up most nights at one point or another dealing with some aspect of that. But what she's asking is something more philosophical. And so the way I answer that is the question that plagues me at the end of every day is I think to myself, did I do enough today? Did I do enough today? Did I get enough accomplished? Did I deliver enough value for my clients? 
Did I go out and chase business? Did I make the hours that I have valuable? Did I make them matter? I worry about that literally at the end of every day. And what's most surprising about that is as I reflect on my days and as I think about what I have accomplished and what I have done and the volume of activity that I've done, if I compare that against my best day in any job I've ever had working for someone else, I am accomplishing more in a day than I frequently did in a week at any other job that I had. Now, that's not to say I was lazy or marking time at any of my other jobs. I wasn't. I absolutely was not. But in terms of raw deliverables, in terms of things that I was accomplishing on a day-to-day basis, being self-directed, being self-motivated, having everything on the line, and having it come down to me is really motivating. It will keep you going. And you could have had the hardest day, the longest, most stressful day filled... Excuse me. Seriously, no editing on this episode. Filled with calls and emails and tasks and writing and coordination and parenting and keeping your house going and mowing your goddamn lawn, which I know it's winter now, but seriously, I've told people this. Having a lawn has turned me into more of a dad than having two children ever did. Seriously, I look out at my lawn and I'll see weeds there and I'll go, oh, these goddamn weeds. I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill them right now. I hate that I have weeds in my lawn. I shouldn't care about that. And on a, on a certain level, I don't. But there's another level where I go, it was very expensive to get this thing installed. And now I got to maintain it. I got to make sure it looks good. I got to make my investment pay off. And I didn't intend for this, but that's like a metaphor for having your own business. I have to make this pay off. I've got too much sweat equity in here to just start farting off and reading the internet. You know, start just staring out the window and frittering the day away. I can't do that anymore. I mean, I don't even have time to do the things that I love to do. I went back recently and I read some old Crew Jones Society posts. For those of you who don't know, I found out a humor website with two of my friends called the Crew Jones Society. We used to update every day and I was putting words upon words upon words out there. I was writing pretty much every day of the week. And each article was probably averaging like 3,000 words. I had a lot to say back then. I cannot sit down and write a blog post anymore. And, I mean, that's that bums me out. So the idea that I can't even keep up with my own blog. I haven't sent out a company newsletter in I don't know how long. Because I'm so deep in the client work and deep in parenting. And there's just a lot of tasks to do every day. And so I look back at the end of each day and I go... Did I do enough today? And most days intellectually, I'll say, yeah, you accomplished a lot today. Today was a good day. And I have more good days than I have bad days. But there's still a part that nags at me that goes, ooh, I don't know. Could you have done more? And while that's torturous and while I think about that a lot and while it plagues me, I think ultimately that's good. I mean, I... I have drive, I have hunger, I want to deliver as much value as I possibly can for the clients that I work with and for the people that depend on me. And so getting a profile piece in the Denver Business Journal, a great, great publication, one that I've been told by Kathy and others, their membership continues to grow. The paper has never been more profitable. In this age of journalism, having a paper that is not only profitable, but growing, 
that's a miraculous achievement. And so it's just a testament to them doing really, really good work. And to be featured in their series of thought leaders, to be considered a thought leader in Denver, when you look at some of the other people that they profiled, is just a blessing and an honor. And I thank you for listening to this. If this is your first episode or if you've listened to, how many do I have? All other 121 episodes. I thank you. I'm humbled. I'm honored. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I cannot believe this is my life. And I say that in the best way possible. Sometimes you look at your life and you go, how is this my life? What am I doing? Long pause because <laughs> it keyed me into something else that I wanted to talk about. And anyone who knows me well knows that I am a lifelong Chicago Cub fan. My parents grew up in Chicago and moved here before I was born. They've been here since like 1970. But as I grew up, so I was born in 81, we didn't get the Rockies until 1993. So my first love was always the Chicago Cubs. And the first team I ever loved was the 1989 Cubs. That was my first favorite team uh, in any sport and remains un probably until this year my all-time favorite team. Well, <laughs> as you're well aware, they won the World Series this year, which my face nearly melted clean off. I was so excited about it. And I wasn't as much excited for me as I was for my dad because my dad has been a Cub fan his entire life and he has told me what the Cubs have meant to him. He had sort of a rough childhood uh, in a number of ways. I'm not going to get into it here because, number one, he's not here to talk about it. Number two, that's not really my place. But suffice to say, uh, he had a lot of challenges in his childhood growing up. And the Cubs were the thing that he escaped to. They provided him salvation. They provided him sanctuary. If, if you've ever heard him describe Wrigley Field, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I adore Wrigley. Wrigley is my favorite place ever to watch a baseball game even with its, you know, stupid obstructed views. Um, it's still just magic. I was going to write a big, long blog post about it, and I got halfway into it, and real life intervened the next day. And I didn't get to write the Chicago Cubs victory blog that I wanted to. I didn't want to do, like, a throwaway Facebook post. I didn't want to do something disposable like that. I wanted to kind of memorialize the moment and remember everything that I was thinking. Well, for a variety of reasons, I didn't get to do that. And when I sat down to revisit it and start over, those thoughts were gone. They were pretty much gone forever. I, I had a writing window that disappeared. It vanished. And that sucks. That's the way it happens. But since I cannot access those thoughts and feelings in a way that I can write about them in a satisfactory way, I'll pretty much never get to write that blog post. And while that breaks my heart for a variety of reasons, it's far subordinate to the joy that I experienced in the Cubs winning the World Series. So here's a few thoughts about it. I have, I have three main points here that I want to make. And I need to memorialize this somehow. That's just how I'm wired. So here we go. Here are three things that I don't remember about the Cubs winning the World Series and erasing 108 years of hideous, boring futility. As I think about this year and as I think about this team, Probably the most enduring memory that I'll have happened during the post-game interview session. They were talking to Chris Bryant, and 
they played in slow-mo the very last out. Michael Martinez grounded out to Chris Bryant at third. He charged the ball, threw it over to Anthony Rizzo, and clinched the World Series for the Cubs. What I remember most is he's smiling the biggest, goofiest, shit-eating his grin I've ever seen as he fielded it and threw it to Rizzo. There's a video of it. I'll link to it in the companion blog post here. And anytime I rewatch it, I start smiling again. It's fantastic. I may have to watch this video every single day going forward, you know, depending on the trajectory of the country, which I'll get into here in a bit. The second thing I'll remember, number two, is my best friend Jason writing on Facebook after the game was over. He wrote this post, and I'm quoting now. This is for my best friend and those two years we lived together when I'm pretty sure I watched more Cub games than Rocks games. And for his dad who waited far too long for this. Congrats, Cubbies, and let's not overlook the effort of Cleveland. Awesome game, but John and Jack fly that W. That touched my heart and always will. And as I said, I'm not even happiest for me. I'm happiest for my dad. And the fact that Jason feels compelled to comment on that and, and he's happy for us, that forever will just be a light inside of me and I'll carry it with me. And I thank you, buddy, and I love you. Number three. One of the things I'll remember most is the feeling I had during that Cubs entire run after they obliterated the Giants. And by the way, goodbye 1989, finally. Thanks, this year's Cubs, for finally putting that ghost in my mind out of its misery by dropkicking the Giants into the goddamn toilet this year. Will Clark can still eat a bag of hell? But, regardless, I knew the Cubs were going to win this year. I could feel it in my bones. I know it sounds like I'm full of shit because they ended up winning. But, and again, I'm going to sound like a third grader here invoking this argument, but you can ask my wife, you can ask my mom, or you can ask my dad. I never wavered in my faith. My mom watches Grace one day a week. And when the Cubs were down, they were down 3-1, she seemed resigned to the Cubs falling short yet again. But without missing a beat, I said to her, nope, don't do that. The Cubs are going to win today. Say it with me. The Cubs are going to win today. And I have no idea where this irrational confidence came from, but I wrote it, and it paid off. The only time I had doubt in the entire series, when they were down 3-1, I still wasn't worried. I go, they're going to come back. They're going to win. They, they have to. It's going to happen this year. The only time I had doubt was in Game 7, when Rajay Davis hit that home run off a oldest Chapman in the 8th to tie it. I go, oh, God damn it. Oh, I can't. I, like, I knew the Cubs were going to get to Corey Kluber in that game. And when Dexter Fowler hit a leadoff home run against him, I go, yep. They've seen Kluber now twice. This is their third time in like, what, how many days? Nine days? Something like that? Ten days? Whatever it was. It was a lot of times to see one pitcher. Now, the problem is that was also true of Aroldis Chapman, who Joe Madden, I love him. He's incredible. Probably the best manager in the game today. Made some very questionable choices regarding Aroldis Chapman. And... Okay, that's fine. They still won. I'm not going to argue about this. Um, and Aroldis Chapman is now a Yankee again, so whatever. But Rajay Davis hits the home run off Chapman in the eighth to tie it. And I thought, if the Cubs get through this in the ninth, and I don't think they will, it seems set up for a Cleveland walk-off, right? Cleveland was at home, bottom of the ninth. It seems like they're going to get something together, and they're going to win. But amazingly, the Cubs get through the inning, and then the Tarps come out. And there's a rain delay 
with a tie game in the bottom of the ninth in the World Series, there's a rain delay. And I go, there's no way the Cubs are losing now. <laughs> like, seriously? I mean, you, you may as well have thrown a bucket of water in the face of every single fan in Cleveland. And you pretty much did because it was raining. And uh, I realize that's a little bit on the nose. But the point is, their momentum was gone. You got to ride that. So, rain delay. Cubs would not lose from that point forward. And then Bryant threw the soft tapper to Rizzo to end the game. My dad told me my mom said to him, wow, he was right. They did it. It's an amazing feeling to know in your bones that an outcome is going to happen and then be proved right. So I'm over the moon over the Cubs winning the World Series, and those are just a few thoughts that I have. I I have to get them out in some format or another, so there it is. You're welcome, or sorry for having to endure that if you're not a fan of the Cubs. Now, that brings me to something else that I haven't talked about at all in public. And, I mean, you can probably guess or appreciate why, but Donald Trump is the president-elect of the United States of America. And while I haven't made a big to-do about my dislike of this particular person who is now uh, ascending to the highest office pretty much in the entire world. Um, I have mentioned it a few times. I wrote a long piece about the media tactics of Bernie Sanders uh, many months ago, and I talk about my feelings for Mr. Trump there. Um, I've also alluded to it on Facebook a few times, but nothing real explicit, nothing real overt. And before we get into that, I need to pivot real quick to talk about um, the retirement of a congresswoman that I deeply admire and that I very much like, and she deserves a few words. Cynthia Lummis represented the only congressional district, the only federal congressional district in Wyoming. And in my corporate gig, I spent a good chunk of my time for about half of it working in Wyoming. I became an honorary Wyomingite. Is that right? Wyomingite? Wyomingin? I think it's Wyomingite. It's clearly been a few years since I've been up there on a regular basis. But I met her a few times, and she is absolutely delightful. She has, I think, the interests of her constituents and of the country at the forefront of every decision she makes, every meeting she takes. She treats people with respect and kindness, and she has the most gorgeous, booming laugh you've ever heard. And I say that because it's very reminiscent of the same laugh that my wife has. So I was up at this event in Jackson Hole a few years ago, and someone made her laugh. And I hear this laugh, and I go, is Kristen here? Where the hell? Where is she? I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure she's back in Denver. No, that was, uh, that was Congresswoman Lummis. And so I told her that. I said, you have the exact same laugh as my wife. And that just endears me to you even, even further. And she found that very charming. And, you know, we got along famously uh, in all of our dealings together. Fast forward a couple of years ahead. And Kristen and I are in Jackson Hole again. And she's up there. And just by serendipity, we end up on the same flight as her going from Jackson Hole to Denver. <laughs> and we end up in the same row. So Congresswoman Lummis is on the aisle. Kristen's in the middle. I'm on the, uh, on the window. <laughs> and so she recognizes us. She says, hi. She turns to me and she says, now don't you get us laughing. Okay. <laughs> because we'll, we'll disrupt this whole plane. And 
Then we all started laughing. It was fun. It was a very charming exchange. So we, we basically, you know, we don't need to hector her the whole flight. We're not best friends. You know, we're professional acquaintances. So we let her get back to whatever she's doing. Well, what she's doing is she pulls out this stationery. She pulls out what is almost like a calligraphy pen, like this gorgeous fountain pen. And she starts writing these handwritten thank you notes. I don't know who they were to or what it was regarding, but she wrote probably at least a half dozen of them, maybe even 10. But she's sitting on the plane, a time when she can decompress, where she doesn't have to be on, where she knows we're going to be safe and we're not going to hector her the entire flight. But she's writing these gorgeous thank you notes with this unbelievably beautiful penmanship. And I thought, this is a very conscientious person. This is a person with a beautiful soul, a person who is dedicated to public service, wants to do it right, and wants to acknowledge the people in her orbit who have had a positive influence or made a contribution or whatever it is to her. And as I think about this story and the fact that she's retiring uh, at, at the end of this term, so 2016 is her last year in the legislature and she's moving on to something else. I think about President-elect Trump talking about draining the swamp. And I get that philosophically. I get we have a lot of dissatisfaction with Congress and with with our leadership. You know, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you probably find fault on the other side. A lot of times within your own party. I, I've had a lot of Democrat friends express frustration that Representative Pelosi is once again the head of the minority in the House of Representatives. I get that. She's been there for a very long time. And you go, God, let's get some change. Let's get some new blood. Let's, you know, that's sort of what the candidacy of Bernie Sanders was about. It's a lot what the candidacy of Donald Trump was about. And so, I mean, I understand that philosophically, but the thing I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around is the idea that we're draining the swamp of people like Congresswoman Lemus. And I know a lot of fantastic people who work in the House and Senate. Now, I'm not going to get all partisan on you and, you know, talk about who my favorites are because that's irrelevant. What is relevant is that when people have problems with Congress, a lot of times what you'll hear is they're all crooks. They're all thieves there. They're all on the take. You know, they're, they're all self-interested. They're craven. They're awful. They're diabolical. What about the one who represents you? Uh, that, you know, they're okay. I, I like them. And that's the problem with the House of Representatives. You know, you have someone who represents your district. And, you know, you may find yourself in a district that doesn't align with your political party or your set of beliefs. Um, I happen to not be a huge fan of, of my representative. Um, she's fine. She's been there for a long time. She's not my favorite legislator. Um, so as I live in her district, I go, okay, she's that like, this is who we have. But a lot of people will say, no, I like mine. I like mine. Well, that's true of most of the people in Congress. So until you get dissatisfied with your own representative, no real change is going to happen. And one of the most tragic things when the pendulum of politics swings, it's not, it's not the people like Nancy Pelosi who suffer. She is safe in her district. It is not people like Ken Buck, who represents the 4th District of Colorado, who suffer. It's always the moderates who suffer. Because the winds of change sweep in, 
And there are targeted races every year. There are moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans. There are Democrats who represent, you know, heavily Republican leaning districts. There are Republicans who represent heavily Democrat leaning districts. Those are the people who are always swept out. And those are the people who generally compromise the most. So instead of, you know, getting something in there where you're going to accomplish a lot, you just end up getting more polarization. And that frustrates the hell out of me because by digging in, by demonizing the other side, by speaking ill of them, by not acknowledging their humanity, we get nothing done. And that pisses me off. I learned so much in my corporate gig by talking to people who disagreed fundamentally with what I do. You know why? Because it not only helped me understand their view of the world more, and by going in without an agenda, without seeking to change their mind, and just hearing them out, I learned a lot, not only about them and how they see the world, I learned a lot more about myself. You know, I learned about what makes me tick. I learned how to look at what I do with a fresh lens. And maybe I didn't change my mind, but I certainly thought about it with more nuance. And I thought about it in a deeper way. And... Uh, a, a way that, that made me not only better at what I do, but more empathetic to the people who oppose me. And it makes me sad when we resort to demonizing the other side to the extent that we do. Now, without getting too far down the rabbit hole, talking about President-elect Trump, I find his rhetoric appalling, um, just on a human level. You know, maybe you agree with his policies, maybe you don't. Maybe you want to drain the swamp. Maybe you think his policy ideas, as few as he's actually given us, are good and will take the country in the right direction. Maybe you like his cabinet picks. But I think if I were a group of which he spoke during his run to the presidency, I'd be very nervous. As a white, straight male who does well economically and full, full, fully able-bodied, on a, on a personal safety level, I don't think I have a lot to worry about. But if I were a minority, if I were a member of the LGBTQ community, if I were disabled, uh, I, th I think I'd be afraid of some of the things that, that President-elect Trump promised to do. And the fact that we are dehumanizing each other and that we are working to demonize each other, I find terrifying and enormously disheartening just as an American and as a human, and the fact that our politics has come to this just makes me sad, and I don't know what to do about it. I think all I can do is continue to work in a collaborative way, as I have done, lead by example as much as I possibly can, uh, because if we continue to demonize each other in this country, and if we keep looking to remove each other's humanity... There's not going to be much of a country left, and I don't want that to happen. So I know that's vague. Maybe that's a cop-out. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I know, like a lot of people, uh, I'm anxious about what's to come. I, I have some fear. I have some anger. I have, you know, I, I have any number of feelings about the way that this election cycle has played out. And I don't know what to do about them. And I don't know what to say. 
And basically, it's like anything else. One foot in front of the other. Do the best work that you can. Take opportunities where they arise. Defend those who cannot defend themselves. So that's pretty much all I'll say uh, on that. And uh, let's see. How are we doing on time? All right. We're going to wrap this up here momentarily. But first, um, since this is a popular topic here, uh, I already covered the sickness going through our house. But let's talk parenting real quick. Just a, a, a quick thing <laughs> that you never know what your child is going to do, what your child is going to say. Um, that's obvious, but I never expected my daughter to refer to me as garden. Okay. She calls me garden. And there are times where she says it, she's kind of got a pacifier in her mouth where it sounds like daddy. You know, it's like, dadun, dadun. But no, mostly it's just garden. She's like, garden, garden. And I I didn't know why this was, but my wife uh, was kind enough to inform me that we have these little books, these little like alphabet books. They're, you know, what, like five by five. They're these little squares and each one has a letter. And then there's three words that start with that letter inside that book. So we read those books all the time. The best one was the G because we said, your name is Grace. It starts with G. What else starts with G? You know, typical parenting kind of thing. And the first picture is of a garden. So I go, Grace, that's a garden. Can you say garden? And she said it so funny and so cute. She was like, it was, it was almost like she was growling it. You know, she's like, garden. And, uh, <laughs> and I was so amused by that and so charmed by that. I go, God, that's funny. I, I have to, I want her to say that all the time. You can see where this is going. The next picture is of guitar. And she sort of would grunt that one out too. She'd be like, grah, grah. But it, better than that, uh, my mouth is getting a little dry from talking for a half hour straight. But uh, so she would say guitar, too. So people would be around and I'd go, Gracie, say garden. Garden. Say guitar. Guitar. And I think she, because I was asking her to say it all the time, she conflated the two and it became daddy is garden. Garden is daddy. So that's me. I'm her garden. What can I say? It's adorable. There are times where I'm like, I really wish you would just call me daddy. Seriously. I, I <laughs> it's weird being garden, but it's also unique. It's also one thing that makes my daughter herself. It's what makes our relationship unique. So, you know, I'm not going to work too hard to, uh, to change that. It's, it's an adventure every day. Sloan's getting bigger. She is just personality plus. I mean, that girl is so aware and she wants to keep up with her sister already. She's five months old. She's standing in the exorciser. She's not going to crawl. She's just going to start running. Um, it's never a dull day around here from what we're doing business wise to, you know, what's happening, uh, in the development of my children. I'm very blessed. It's the holiday season. Let's go out on a message of positivity. Uh, thank you all for being a part of it. To whatever extent you've been a part of my life, if you're listening to this for the first time now, I thank you so much. If we see each other on a regular basis, I adore you. Whoever you are listening to this, you are in my life for a reason, and I value and, che and treasure you and cherish that. So, all right, that's enough. Let's play the outro. That'll do it for this episode of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you to me for sitting down and talking for 35 minutes, I guess. I feel dumb to say that, but whatever pay some love to our sponsor four degrees the number four d-e-g-r-e dot e-s 
They are doing some work for me right now. We are partnering up on a proposal, and it's exciting. Their ability to build websites, build online grassroots coalitions, and get messages in front of the people who need to see them most is unparalleled. I'm so excited I finally get to work with them again, and I'm thrilled that they continue to be the sponsor of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you, 4Degrees, on the web, number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Let's underline this one more time. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. We're on the web as well, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. We spent the first half of the show talking about that, so we're not going to shill it too much more. You know what Deft is about. John of All Trades is on the social medias. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T pod. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Get John of All Trades delivered right to your listening device by you know, hitting subscribe on there. And then give us a rating, give us a review. That helps us move up. I am back next week with a fresh guest. And then, uh, what? It's Christmas, pretty much. So you may not see any more John of All Trades until maybe after the new year. So enjoy your holidays. Be safe. Be happy. Be merry. Be bright. And until then, say goodnight. That's good, Johnny.